Uh, this is Tobias Buckel. You can find me at uh, www.tobiasbuckel.com. I'm Caribbean-born science fiction writer, and this has been Kind of Epic Show. And so when I was reading about that, I thought, you know, in Arctic Rising that uh, there's one atoll area that I do know, and that's Anagata, which is in the British Virgin Islands. And it's an island where, you know, when I approached it the first time, mm. it, because of the curve of the of the earth, you know, as as you're on the on the ocean and you're in a in a dinghy heading towards it, you you first like see palm trees just kind of come out of the water. And and you don't see any any dirt or islands. You just kind of see these trees just just poking up out of the water, which is really really it's that's a unique thing to see. And as you get closer and closer, you know these these houses kind of rise up and they look like they're just on the water. And then as you get closer and closer, you start to see like waves from the reefs. And it's not until you get really close that you can start to see like the beach and some dirt, you know, and some land that everything is sitting on. And it's mind blowing because when you when you when you've seen that you you your your mind goes back to it and you think wow a place like that is going to disappear in in the next fifty years and so you know I kind of uh, exaggerate a little bit because I'm writing fiction and 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 you know doing I think you exaggerated you exaggerated mostly the. You exaggerated mostly the generosity in this case. <laughs> that, probably, that probably. there would be a settlement that quickly. I mean, I think that was one of the more interesting things. Is, um, is I mean, maybe because it's the venue of fiction, but then you have the ability to be like, oh, well, with all the the opening up of the the Arctic, now uh, some of these uh, these at or kind of developing countries or some of these at risk communities get to be power brokers suddenly. <laughs> you were talking about. I think we talked about last time that you were like Greenland kind of sees it coming. And they're like. Oh, well, you had a chance to be a world power because of our natural resources and we only got a few people. Um, yeah, let's keep it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's I, I'm always fascinated by countries that are small, you know, but that are able to to be global power brokers. And that comes from being from the Caribbean. I've always been interested in in, you know, the fact that, a, you know, Caribbean countries are, you know, small in terms of of, you know, how much they have access to and yet they are on the world scene and doing things and so being able to do that is fascinating to me to to know that like you know Barbados has like you know amazing research going on with solar energy and that the you know University of the Virgin Islands is doing really amazing things with aquaponics in fact they pretty much invented aquaponics which is this uh you know sort of whole life cycle of of breeding fish and then the fish waste neutral uh provides nutrients for plants and you just create this virtuous cycle right there inside of a you know one one area and and there's all this research and stuff going on because a lot of people usually tend to think not politics or science but you know culture uh is what we tend to get most associated with like here's the music here's the tourism and here's that stuff and and we're very good at branding identification you know with that stuff but i really wanted to write some novels that looked at what the caribbean was doing in terms of other things and and that was a little bit of arctic rising you have a caribbean spy wandering around the arctic you know north kind of 
keeping an eye on things and and seeing that the Caribbean has interests in there, you know, in in how things are going down up there. And so for Hurricane Fever, I really wanted to bring it down to the Caribbean and actually show a glimpse of what the Caribbean might be able to to do in 50, 60 years when it's even punching more above its weight and further along down this path. Because if you think about it, it's amazing because the year I was born is the year that a lot of Caribbean nations were getting independence, right? So it's only been in my lifetime, actually, that that we've, you know, a lot of these islands have been charting their own course. And the fact that they've been able to do what they've been able to do in 30 years after the hundreds of years of, of sort of crushing oppression and not being able to make their own choices and being held back, you know, the fact that there are islands that, you know, have 99% literacy rates and are playing global politics and that are doing research is really uh, amazing. I think it would be hard to argue against that. <laughs> although, although Marika, because Marika. <laughs> I, I just have to get that in there. We're, we're a patriotic podcast. We did a Captain America episode, not, not nigh on just two months ago. So <laughs> I, I appreciate all this good stuff about the Caribbean, but I'm going to talk about Marika for a little bit here. Um, anyway, well, maybe I will. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> but I did want to talk about... But isn't your last name Canada? Yeah, I don't know. Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> they're not supposed to know. It's a secret. Talk about, see, I'd be the worst spy ever if I was actually like from the CIS or whatever. It would be like, oh, hi, 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 I'm Gabe Canada. Uh, <laughs> I have no relation at all to the country that's up there. That's why I'm using not saying A. A, yeah. I'm not a spy at all. No. <laughs> No, I thought it was interesting, though, that you had, I mean, that you decided to go with the route of kind of espionage, because it isn't, I'll admit, when you introduce the character and he's a, he's a, a Caribbean person with a, a boat up in the Arctic, uh, the first thought was not spy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a bias because it's not something that what I would have been exposed to in any media before. And I think that's part of what was fascinating about the NPR review uh, is essentially they draw the same conclusion. They're like, so the, so the book starts off with a lesbian blimp pilot from Nigeria flying above the Antarctic um, or flying above the, the Arctic Circle uh, in the high north in Canada. So I've not read that before. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a similar experience with Rue. And I, I think that that's one of the, the one of the things that I really enjoyed about the, the book, obviously, and why we wanted to have you on the first time. Uh, and part of why we were hoping to transcribe and, and get this up for, for race money this time around is because it, it's one of the things that makes such an easy proponent for uh, the need for diversity or, or why diversity can be a good thing in, in, in books, not just from um, a sales perspective. I mean, just getting more people agency and being able to relate more to characters and that, that resemble themselves, but because it's new, it's something that I had not read before in science fiction. I just wonder if you have uh, any kind of comment about that or any, any, any thoughts on, on that type of, uh, of agency in writing. Sure. Well, I mean, this is kind of my mission statement. Uh, You know, I'm trying to provide adventurous, exciting tales with, you know, a diverse, a diverse character group, you know, and one of the, you know, one of the things is that I grew up in a very diverse area of the world where we have people with all sorts of backgrounds. You've got the, you know, sort of the African, you know, uh, influx in the Caribbean, obviously. You have people coming up from South America with, 
indigenous backgrounds. You have people who are all coming from the Middle East who have come down to the Caribbean uh, either in the past or more recently when they were leaving you know, some of the troubles behind and coming to the Caribbean and immigrating there. Um, you have people who uh, have Chinese background and Asian descent uh, who came to the Caribbean uh, back when the colonial powers were importing a lot of Asian uh, workforce to do uh, work down in the Caribbean. And so, like, you've got all these, all these people that, that are up and down the Caribbean that you run into. And growing up around all of these people, uh, it was very cosmopolitan, I guess. I just always took it for granted. And I come from a diverse family background myself. My, you know, half my family is, is from the north end of Grenada and the other half is, is from Britain. And, you know, growing up around all of this, I, I, when, I came to, when I came to literature – science fiction in particular, I wasn't finding it. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where I didn't realize how much I was missing it until I came across certain books, you know? And when I found those books with more diverse characters, it was sort of like realizing that I'd been kind of walking through a desert all along and came to an oasis. And, you know, like you just have this aha moment where you went like, wow, where's, where has all this been in my science fiction? And I was very hungry for it and started to think when I was, you know, writing it that I would like to to bring some of the, the diversity into it. And one of the things that I, I immediately ran into was this assumption that a lot of people had that diversity in fiction was like cod liver oil. You know, that it was in theory good for you, but it was something that you had to do uh, like – Precisely, precisely. It was it was this like thing you did, but it didn't mean you were going to enjoy it. It's like right? the you know, it's like the uh, the Justice League of America syndrome. You're like, well, <laughs> we think that we should have some more uh, people in the the film, so let's give them, let's let people know what they are by naming them. So we'll have Apache Chief, and we'll have <laughs> Black Lightning. He's black. He shoots lightning. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's... Uh, so it's it's like that. It's like they put them in there, but then don't expect them to be fully fleshed out characters. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it was really frustrating because uh, even now, I mean, I recently uh, uh, announced new covers for my Xenowelf books, the space adventure series that I mm. did with Caribbean people of Caribbean background in them, and uh, you know, it, it the the new covers look very science fictional. They're planetary. They're they're very outer spacey. You know, um, they they scream science fiction and you know adventure, big concept SF and. And it was funny because a, a number of people immediately kind of responded to me and they said, wow, you know, I, uh, I really am interested in reading these books now. I previously thought that, you know, you wrote more quote unquote issues fiction. And, you know, I was left kind of head desking going like, you know, I, I don't, you know, like not that there's anything bad with issues fiction. First of all, like issues fiction can be enjoyable in reading all in and of itself. But two, like just the fact that I had diverse characters meant that people had kind of pigeonhole them into, oh, it must be serious and it's going to be hard to read and it's not going to be any fun. And therefore, you know, I'm not going to get around to reading it just yet. And it's very frustrating sometimes to to kind of get that response. You know, you kind of go like, wow, there's this kind of brick wall where people assume that I'm not writing fun, adventurous fiction just because of the, the uh, fact that my characters don't 
look white. It's and... really it's confusing. It's like as if <laughs> people who love like science fiction generally, I think of them. I, I mean, to, to maybe it's I, it's not exactly the most cosmopolitan area in the world growing up in the in the Midwest, but there's, there's still a tremendous amount of uh, of diversity here where I live in Indianapolis, and uh, something it's felt every day, and it's it's just seems so strange because it's like these people who would have grown up with me watching something like Star Trek or, or really enjoying those worlds, and it's like, well, don't you intrinsically? think that they have fun it's like as if they they when they would encounter something like that they'd be like oh well i guess just their the thought process is like well i guess brown people don't have fun i mean <laughs> i just don't i don't understand i really i really don't like why why it's an issue in in, in fantasy that that uh, that you have suddenly less diversity presented in the future when that's never seemingly been the vision of most of these people that are kind of pillars of the science fiction world that that people enjoy. Right. <laughs> I, just, I just, I scratch my head as well. I'm, I'm sorry that this is less of a question and more just like nodding an agreement with no, you over yeah, the phone. It's, it's a strange thing that a lot of people have internalized, you know, and, and it's, it's another point that, uh, and Nettie Okorafor made a really good point online where she said once that, you know, she's very frustrated because someone had asked her about, a, you know, whether she reads all of these other books by other, you know, science fiction writers of color and, and does she like, you know, like them all or is, she, is her work, how does her work compare to them? And she went like, actually, there's a lot of different things that we're all doing and we don't all have to like each other's work 100% because we're all different people doing different things. And that's kind of going to be the cool thing, which is that you're going to like some of the work that's being done by writers of color in the field and you might not like some of the work that's being done and that's totally okay what we need is a breadth of vision that allows people to come in and find something that they like like whether it's going to be super really introspective literary work or whether it's going to be super adventurous explosion explosions right and there's going to be a range and you know you find a, a subgenre or a genre or a, a, an author you like and you plug into that and that's that you know there's and that's going to happen and yeah, it's like, you know, I kind of feel like there's this, you know, some some for some reason, some some people have internalized the fact that, you know, they can't they're not going to enjoy something that has uh, diverse characters, you know, and I I just am like, you know, oh, gosh, let me just say that, like, all I want to do is entertain and blow things up is is my mission. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm about to say, like, it, I the really the shorter and uh, kind of follow up to what you had said before would have been if I'd just been like, you know, there are mechs and stuff in it, right? Like, <laughs> there's there's explosions. And then there's there. It's a it's an entire space opera in a book form. Why? Why would it not be fun? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but gosh, I mean, um, I thank you for for talking about uh, kind of high tech stuff here. Imagine that with a science fiction author. <laughs> we're t- we we started off the interview by talking off uh, with a little bit of uh, high high end research going on. Uh, I really appreciate the the stuff about the hydroponics there or aquaponics because yeah, uh, it's. Um, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek, if we're going back to that, is the one that's set in Indiana because that's where Janeway is from. And so, like, let's build an arcology. And I'm like, God, I wish we were actually doing that. <laughs> <laughs> because those type of things, those kind of closed um, closed systems are really interesting to, to see because that's that has to be one of the things that we're doing in terms of uh, food security in, in the future. And, I mean, it's one of the, the neat things about science or speculative fiction is that you have to think of, well, how do we... Because as a person, you have to think, oh, well, I'm going to live in the future. Perhaps I would like to remain alive and could continue eating in the future. This might be a way to do that. And I just wonder if you, I mean, um, how, how, how much of that futurism motivates 
um, you as an author or how much of that w was something that you had integrated as, as, a, as a youth, something that did you ever actually want to pursue engineering or, or, or science uh, in, in general rather than, than authorship? You know, I uh, was always very interested in science, but I, I'm ADD. I, I, I'm like the worst person for keeping track of uh. things <laughs> and minutia and, you know, paperwork. <laughs> so I love science. I love reading about it. I love studying it as much as I can and trying to understand it. But I began to suspect that that would not be the best career for me. Although I've since then found and, and interfaced and talked to a lot of scientists who do have some of the same cognitive you know, difficulties that I had growing up. It's just that when I started to look at getting an actual degree when I was in college about what, you know, looking at what it would take to try and get a, a degree in science, I just looked at the, the amount of self-policing that I would have to do in order to get mm -hmm. the grades that I kind of like veered away from it and said, I will go be a messy, artistic, creative individual because people seem to be a lot more patient with that than if I were in these other areas. I think I, the... Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, and so, yeah, it, you know, I, I kind of regret a little bit, not at least like getting a minor or something like that in science, but I you know, I definitely kind of bounced off of it. And that's not to say that maybe at a better college or a better, you know, in a, in a, with a better peer group or something like that, things may not have, you know, things may have been different. But where I was, it seemed that a lot of the people who were going into science had their had their minutia together, and I just did not. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where sometimes you get the the overlap. Um, I know that um, being in India, again, one of our hometown science fiction heroes is is Kurt Vonnegut, and one of his biggest quotes mm -hmm. was like, "Is if you want to look for good authorship, don't look in the English department all the time." Because he because <laughs> he was an engineer, and so he was oh, like, yeah. he got a, he got away with one of those things where he's just like, "Oh well, I'm not." Maybe maybe I should have uh, kept with the uh, the English a little bit, but we'll uh, we'll see how this works out. <laughs> sure, seems like I got a thing going here. I'm I'm one of those guys who did the English major, and I went into it because I'm I'm a speed reader. I'm able to read really fast, and you know, there's a lot of reading is basically what you know drags people down in 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 that major usually. And for me, it was actually very comfortable because I could do all the reading and have plenty of time left over to focus I, on writing. I can do all of the things. <laughs> I can do all the things without like freaking out, you know? And, and of course, writing really large papers is, is right up my alley. And so it was fun to kind of spend four years very much obsessing about text even if it wasn't text that was my favorite text, it was still fun to just obsess about text and to learn different ways of, of approaching it and to then go and have enough spare time. And, and here's what I did. I mean, basically, I, I went through college and got a C average. I was a horrible student because I only went to every other class at best. And all the spare time I could scrounge by skipping class and not doing certain assignments, as long as I got my C, as long as I didn't flunk out, I would take all that time and just extra time I, I, I found, and I redirected it towards writing. So I, I, I spent a tremendous amount of time going through my apprenticeship when mm. I was in college. Those four years, I wrote you know 100 to 150 short stories. I practiced. I wrote samples. I was writing almost every day, every night. I, you know, skipped a lot of parties, I skipped a lot of social function, and I just basically invested as much time as I could when I was in college, particularly once I was uh, into my sophomore year. There was a little bit of a 
you know, some lost time in my freshman year, but definitely by my sophomore year, I'd kind of gotten up onto this idea of kind of going like every spare minute I can find, I was just budgeting towards trying to become a better writer and trying to figure this all out. And I was sort of very obsessed and, and focused on that. And that's kind of why I went into the English, English degree. I, I kind of felt I had a lot of wiggle room to, to throw extra time at writing. Well, I mean, it's, it's why it's your profession. I mean, people forget that um, the idea of being a professional writer is not, it, it's not a fairy tale. <laughs> it's something that people, people It was do. a lot of work, man, you know, and I, I have a lot of people now who say like, oh man, it's so cool. You know, you're, you're, you get flown around the world. You do all this interesting stuff and speaking gigs and you're living the dream and you have your own schedule. That's amazing. And I was like, yeah, well, I remember three years of being in college when everyone else was going out, you know, hey, we're going to go up and party at this place. You know, do you want to come? And you're like, no, I can't. You know, I've got I've got to put in three or four hours of writing tonight and I'm, you know, behind and they look at you like you're crazy. And now people are working their, you know, their their jobs and they're locked in and they're looking at me and thinking, you know, I've got a great life. And I'm like, I do have a great life, but I really I put a lot a lot of time into it back look, when people were having fun. Look, I'm halfway through the hero's journey right now. You got to leave me alone. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't party right now. I'm in the second yeah. act. Yeah, no, totally. It was, it was really, I know people thought I was a weird kid, but I was, I was really determined. Was, now, one of the things I do regret is that I was so determined that I, there were some small opportunities I missed out on, you know, occasionally, but, <laughs> you know, particularly in the form of travel, I, I should have taken advantage of opportunities to travel more, you know, since I was younger and had that, you know, time flexibility. But on the other hand, now I'm getting some chances to travel now, uh, you know, in my thirties that is still kind of cool. So it, it's kind of working out. Uh, I think I think I was kind of the opposite. I have I was kind of precocious as a writer. I had my first pu- uh, published article when I was like twelve, and then I just didn't I didn't invest as much time as I should have. I should be far more prolific than I am. But I I I love the the idea of of, of just talking to people who have invested so much time because they realize that you get better. <laughs> you have yeah. to start you have to start with something, and then you will you'll be. I mean, you you have no idea what you have until it's on the paper. The worst thing is is just an empty page, and um, that's why it's great to hear somebody who um, uh, it's paying off. Because again, we mentioned New York Times bestselling author, um, and uh, gosh, I, I wanted to go back though to to kind of the middle of our conversation where we were talking a bit about global warming because mm-hmm. we we initiated the kind of a Twitter conversation and part of why we invited you back on the show. We're like, we know your book is coming back out and it has a certain title that unfortunately sounds prophetic. Um, <laughs> and and that was just the, the recent the recent scientific report talking about um, potentially that these these problems, these systemic problems now, um, not because of the the high Arctic, but because of the Antarctic actually possibly being irrevocable like when you hear words like that it's not very fun yeah. essentially, essentially oh these this is going to be the biggest crisis point of the next 50 years is is struggles over over water and struggles over this new trillion dollar passageway that's suddenly opening up, opening up in north america our backyard big deal maybe you should worry about it and so yeah. you're able to not it's not very hard to for you to connect the dots and to, to make a good piece of, of fiction out of that um but now we're looking at something that perhaps is even more dire than, than before. It hasn't, unfortunately, <laughs> things have not shifted in the last three to four years uh, after writing the first book or during the writing of the first book. And I just wanted to see if you had any comment about, about that recent report. Cause I know we'd had that kind of that conversation on Twitter. 
Sure. Well, I mean, it was decades ago that uh, there was a researcher down at Ohio State University for the Polar Bird uh, Research Center, which I still haven't gotten around to visiting and want to visit. But uh, he came up with that initial uh, concept, think, uh, pointing out that if the 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 ice and the rivers underneath the Antarctic uh, began to to melt, then the ice would just slide right off. So you, you know, previously a lot of people have been saying we need to wait. It's going to take a long time for that, you know, miles and miles of ice sitting on top of the continent to melt all the way down. But what he figured out was that if it melts down at the bottom a little bit, then you just get these large chunks of ice just sliding off and going into the ocean. And that's what screws us. And that's what's beginning to happen where he turns out to have been true. So it's not so much that we even need to wait for all that ice to melt. It's just that it's like, you know, if you get the warm, the because it's ice that's sitting on top of land, unlike mm-hmm. in the Arctic, um, you just get that stuff sliding off into the water where it can then float around and, and be warmed up. And, and it's just a mess. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I have signed a contract to write Antarctica Ascendant, which will be the third book in this triptych. And so it goes Arctic Rising, Hurricane Fever, and then I want to talk about the Antarctic because I think that's a big – it's a big deal. And it it looks like, you know, we've kind of – you know, the, the premise of all these three books is is to try and write a, a realistic future. It's uh, – I don't want to do – complete apocalypse which some it's really interesting because Precise. a lot of the a lot of the people are responding to the books and going like this is apocalyptic and some people are like wow this is really um this is really uh, positive this is really warm and fuzzy compared to what it could be and you know that tells me that people are just having all sorts of different reactions which means i probably kind of got a decent scenario going i was trying to think of like you know let's assume that a lot of this stuff can't be undone uh, a lot of this melting is We've raised the temperature, you know, we've gone over the keeling limit, which is, you know, 400, it's either 400 or 450 parts per million, you know, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We're starting to hit so points at which... it takes 50, 50 years to, to degrade that again, is I think what's... Yeah, exactly. And so we, we, we kind of already guaranteed that there's going to be a lot of warming and a lot of chaotic weather in our future. The question is, how much more worse do we want it to be, you know, and so... When I started to write these, it was done under the assumption that we're not going to be able to undo a lot of what has already been done. What does that mean? Question mark. So I wanted to look at, you know, the fact that in the future we would probably be more green and less oil dependent, but yet at the same time still fighting over oil because it makes great plastics, you know, even if we completely wean ourselves of it as for power, which we have to do because it's kind of insane to just destroy a resource. When when we use oil, it just goes away and we never get that that back. But when we make a plastic out of it, you can at least recycle plastic. And so that's actually, you know, less self-destructive. <laughs> you know, let's imagine a future where we're still using oil to make plastics, but we're weaning off of it for, you know, power, where we have, you know, more green. And yet, on the other hand, we've got heavy weather, We've got, you know, destroyed ecosystems and, you know, we're definitely paying the price for what what has been done and see like what, you know, just kind of imagine what is it like to thread that needle from the context of, you know, a spy kind of James Bond, you know, high adventure science fiction novel. And that 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 was kind of the the game plan and and to try and just think about these scenarios. And it's really interesting to, 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 to take 
what scientists pretty much believe is on the ground going to happen in 30 to 50 years and, and yeah. play it out and just watch people's reactions because some people are, are like, it's, this is apocalyptic. And you're like, no, that's our future. Yeah. That best case scenario. You're like, literally, you're, it's not even that you're presenting like the rosiest thing because people – it's so strange for me to because I, I worked very briefly at, at current TV and then we did. I mean, just I mean, it's not it wasn't gung ho over the top about climate change or anything like that. They certainly had coverage, but Al Gore was not the I mean, he was the president, but he was and he did give us like monthly pep talks, but he wasn't exactly out there like making. I mean, he did make it. There was a certain mission where we one of my jobs was I got to moderate um, a, a thing where you got to do a commercial for the, uh, a climate change initiative, the, the now campaign, which is really lovely. Um, but it's, it's like, they have this idea that when an alarm, I mean, they call them an alarmist. They call people who are advocating for, for doing something about climate change alarmist when they talk about like worst possible scenarios, but then those worst possible scenarios are based on climate studies that are inherently conservative because yes. scientists are very skeptical of, of putting anything that's kind of cataclysmic out there because sure. of peer review. Because if yeah. somebody if somebody says that's an outlandish claim, that's the worst thing in the world if you're a scientist because <laughs> exactly. then you're discredited. You don't get to work again. And so you inherently are going to sh- going to try and caper down on what is the, the what is the least strong data or what is my strongest data point? What does it seem to say concurrently? Because you could make this wild claim, but even the mild claim is something like, oh, well, gee, it'll, if you get to two degrees, we'll have like this 30, 30 uh, foot rise or whatever. And goodbye, Manhattan. So like, it's not alarmist to say, hey, maybe we should build a seawall in Manhattan (laughs) to prevent that from happening. And then, so you have a hurricane and you have the worst storm surge in the entire history of the, the 400 year history of the city. And so it's like, oh, well, maybe we should do that. So I mean, why, why do you think people have such a hard time wrapping their head around these big numbers? Because it's it's numbers that in, in the trillions of dollars in terms of either mitigation or in terms of the damage caused by these storms, which is presumably one of the big focuses of, uh, of a novel called Hurricane Fever is the fact that these are going to become more prevalent or, or larger. Um, it was it was it was a bit weird to be writing Hurricane Fever and going through the draft form while, you know, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy was happening. Mm. You know, there's a sense that I there's this the overwhelming fear and sense I have that I can't produce these novels fast enough to kind of deal with things that are happening. When I started Arctic Rising, I set out and I said, you know, here's a science fictional scenario. What if all of the Arctic ice completely finishes melting? You know, and at the time you were talking that about that seemed ridiculous only four at, years ago, and then oops. four years ago scientists were saying like that that isn't even on the worst case scenario list, right? You know, four five years ago, that was something that alarmists said, you know, quote unquote, and and so I set out with like let's just take this as a baseline idea, let's just look at these projections that you know the IPCC has, and let's take their worst case scenario and make that my best case scenario in the book. And even let's make it science fictional by just going one step further past their worst case scenario. Man, by the time the book came out, we didn't have summer sea ice. (laughs) Yeah, we didn't have any summer sea ice. And that was just in like, I mean, that was just in the three years it took for me to put that book through the normal cycle. In a normal, I think in a sane uh, sane media (laughs) culture, that would not, because it's such a weird news story, but it's like, that's a huge thing that no one thought was going to happen in our lifetimes that it happened in our lifetime. It didn't happen in our lifetime. It happened in the span of three years. Yeah. <laughs> and no one reacted to it in, in any alarming fashion. Nothing was done at no, all. Same old, same that. old. Yeah. Oh. 
So, so I mean, like the thing is though that like uh, and cost of tackling this is being too expensive. And the fact of the matter is, and Ramez Nam is a writer online. He's the author of Nexus. He also writes uh, The Infinite Future, a nonfiction book about uh, technological crises that we're facing. Real interesting, real interesting writer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he pointed out online is something that I've actually been, you know, uh, not I, I haven't been able to put into words as well as he just did, but something I've been talking about, which is that the cost of mitigation is never as expensive as the critics say. It is the worst the worst thing that we do is that we actually take and don't push back against the meta story that it's expensive and economically damaging to attack pollution and to decarbonize, right? And the fact of the matter is it's actually not that expensive. It's ex- incredibly cheap compared to the benefits that it gives us. Because we're not, the we're more not talking you dig about public it, health costs for the current means of extraction. We don't talk about... How much does it cost in in soot? How much does it cost in in um, exactly? How much exactly. does it cost in carcinogenic chemicals that you're well, putting well, into the air? Well, first of all, that's just secondary bonuses. Yeah, on, and how much on, does it on, cost on to actually the upfront, extract the stuff? Yeah, on the upfront fact, like cutting cutting carbon and cutting pollution is never as expensive as people realize because we're a market based democratic capitalist society. And all of those are very powerful engines. And let me just put on my pro-capitalist hat and pro-science hat here, which is which is these people who say it's too expensive, I view as fundamentally anti-capitalist and fundamentally anti-science. Because if you basically look at the history of any one of these things, these people have always stood up and said it's going to cost, and then they quote a, a, an amount that's 10 or more times what it ends up actually costing. When they said uh, – when we were uh, looking at getting rid of ozone-destroying materials, everyone said it's going to cost trillions and kill the economy. And you know what? It didn't. It cost some billions. It cost like a rounding error people, of our GDP to stop killing the ozone layer. And everyone said have forgotten you'll never – won. And we won. We did it. it we happened. got rid of CFCs. And it and actually what? You still have cold air conditioning. At- yeah, you still have cold air conditioning. It's awesome, right? And that's yeah. because science science can route around. We are smart. Science works. And if you basically say like, you know, if you if you make it too expensive to do it one way, we'll find another way to do it. If you say that there's no way that science can figure out how to cheaply stop these things from happening, you're basically saying it's impossible. I give up. It is the most defeatist and it is the most anti-economical, the anti-science, and anti-market opinion to have, and no one basically frames it as such, because for the price of a of of a fraction of a percentage of GDP, you can actually throw a tremendous amount of resources at stopping this. The thing is, what it does is, in the short term, it produces a little bit of pain, but in the long term, it doesn't. In the ten to twenty year span, it's not even a blip on our upward march of GDP. Right? I mean. Show me where any previous anti-pollution stuff has destroyed our industries or destroyed our march up in GDP. It hasn't because a market-based economy and science can actually just come up with solutions that end up costing roughly the same. And in most cases, a lot of these plants that initially kind of said like, oh, this is going to destroy us, have turned out to find out that it is revenue neutral, cost neutral, or in some cases – Going green has actually saved a lot of money 
us to basically sit there and say, like, this will destroy our economy because it has never destroyed our economy and it is not going to destroy our economy. Looking, that looking is at just... the most recent proposal, because we're I mean, the reason that we're able to talk about this is that it's in the news. And right. so 30 percent reduction in emissions from just power plants. It's it's compared to all the other legislation that we've had proposed in the last decade or so. It's actually fairly modest. But even so, there's the the reaction from from the 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 camp is just pretty much ah! <laughs> I'm some somebody you've just set my hair on fire. But no, and it's and look. Well, ultimately, at, they they ultimately do not believe that science or the market will be able to continue. So basically, they have a fundamentally anti-market, anti-science belief system, which is which is that making any change will kill it. Right. And and I think that it is incredibly short sighted and it's incredibly dangerous to the country and that it is actually costing us in the long term because the longer, it costs the longer us you money for an to, action, the more cost it, it actually. Exactly. Costs. And it's costing us right now in terms of people who are dying and who have asthma, people who are dying, uh, getting coal, people who are dying, getting any number of pollutants and cancers in their systems. And once uh, all this stuff is cleaned up, it ha- will have an incredible health benefit. Uh, to the to the rest of the populace, and this is a quality of life issue as well, and it's just you know that's what drives the debate in China. I don't think that the debate in China is oh gee we need to look better to the Western world. It's um, there's a giant cloud of smog in our largest city, killing, yeah. killing five thousand people, dying of heart or uh, or getting getting heart heart problems because of that. Um, and basically, any time any time you you say that like it's too expensive, you're saying that it's okay for people to die because. It might cost a little bit more in the short term, but not in the long term. Yeah, like um, it is an incredibly ruthless and bloody point of view to have, and it, it says that you just don't believe that humankind is smart enough to figure out how to develop things that will let us continue on. And and the and the and the, and the sad thing is that a lot of other countries are beginning to move ahead in terms of investing in and learning this technology, which means that – and this change is going to have to happen, right? I mean it is – it's it's happening. It's coming, right? The question is when and ha- where and how much. So if you're not on the edge of that, that means you've given up the lead and you've decided not to have the patents and not to have the technology and not have the revenue that that will eventually bring. So for example, you have a Denmark or a Germany or – you know these countries that are looking at how to get fully onto green energy and be completely independent energy independent and and they're trying to get all of their all of their country onto that and that is reaping dividends in terms of investment in technology and and growth of knowledge and if you step back from that and say ah uh-uh, not me then that means someone else gets to develop those patents and benefit from them down the road and so it's it's just so incredibly short-sighted to want to run the other way from it. Fortunately, you know, the US is is very large and there there're parts of it that are, you know, trying to run forward while other parts are trying to run back. And, you know, there there are things that are happening that that are encouraging. So, you know, I'm I'm not this isn't not all doom and gloom here, but it is incredibly frustrating to see the very predictable response of, you know, oh, let's let's make the world a better place. Let's cut back on pollution. Let's get energy independent, let's get more green energy, and to have someone just sort of digging their heels in and screaming, no, not at all, no, no, even when green energy now is starting to become cheaper. <laughs> and, you know, into the, into the inside of it, you know, and 
And you look at countries that, that are there, you look at places like Ghana and Nigeria and South Africa that are, you know, doing, you know, they have their own troubles, but it's like, just remember that like just 30 or 40 years ago, you know, that a lot of these uh, Southeast Asian countries that are now economic powerhouses that are making a lot of our goods were completely written off. I remember when I grew up, India was completely written off. I remember in the early 80s, my first impression of India was uh, starving kids and the rice problem, remember? And in my lifetime, I've gone from seeing that impression in the west of India to India having, you know, taking all the Silicon Valley workers. Having a space program. Having its own space program, right. And, you know, uh, doing its own test launches and, and, uh, you know, as... uh, at this rate, I kind of worry they're going to make it to Mars before we do. <laughs> well, let's not let's not give up on Elon Musk. He's got some pretty <laughs> amazing things that's in California there, but uh, yeah, I mean, so so you look at that, and I, and I and I I remember someone you know um, watching, uh, um, you know watching oh the the Slumdog Millionaire recently and being kind of taken aback and and uh, you know about about it and saying like you know it's it's you know they they like realized they didn't understand India at all in any way you know they're like I you know just like I, I I didn't realize that it had that much poverty in it and I realized that wow at this point people are are surprised when they come across the concept of Indian poverty even though when I grew up that had been like the the dominant narrative right so you can flip that and you think like okay if the, if it only took I'm 35 mm-hmm. so if it only took 25 years or so for that narrative to change you know what happens with a nigeria like you were saying uh, what happens with you know look you know look at you know egypt has revolutions and tunisia and libya and they're going through some incredible growth pains but i mean imagine libya gets its stuff stor- sorted out and tunisia gets its stuff sorted out they and... already have a trade association agreement with the european union and they're they have so and yeah, they're in the Mediterranean. Fast, I mean, yeah. Fast forward that 25, they have, 30 years. Those four countries that we just mentioned are suddenly going to have GDP better than most European nations, and we'll probably have trade association agreements with them, or maybe even have like a EU that extends to all the Mediterranean nations there. And so, it's yeah. it's a completely different world in in just twenty or thirty years because that's just saying, oh, if we have a stable government. Gee, maybe we'll <laughs> we'll have better relations with the world, and we will sell things to the world. So it's it's exactly. I that's this is why science fiction I think is so important because we we get the opportunity to 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 look at a window on ourselves because you're not pretending that this is factual, um, but it doesn't mean that it can't be. I mean, it's aspirational right. in so many ways. And uh, what um what do you think? Forgive me for for so many of these have just been kind of open ended or really long <laughs> questions because <laughs> this is the problem when when I have somebody on who we agree with intensely <laughs> but but what 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 role do you think that that science fiction can play in helping to promote um, scientific literacy as 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 important that that is that is becoming in, in the U S because I think all these big issues that we've been talking about whether it's climate change or whether it's the the develop the the emergence of the developing world as uh, and with new superpowers and and new new allies and new 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 enemies across the globe how how important is it that that we remember 
what it is that helped us in, in so many ways in that scientific literacy, because now we have half the country that doesn't believe in evolution or um, the growing strength of the, the creationist movement or, um, again, just the, the idea of, of climate denialism being so prevalent. Like, how, how important is it that science fiction kind of interjects kind of the cool factor, as it were, in, in science and helps bring people to it? The very strong sort of creationist sentiment in it. And I think if you look at the Pew reports, you know, there's still, you know, a lot of scientific illiteracy in, in the country, but it is slowly getting better over time, you know, and it's, it, it feels worse than it, than it was just because it's so much more out there in the cultural battlefield right now. Whereas before it was a lot more silent and, and well, nobody wants to admit that they, they can't remember if the earth revolves around the sun or the other. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, unfortunately, so, I mean, border people did admit to that in the recent. Yeah. Survey. Yeah. But I mean, that's, we, we are making advances there and, and, it, and it's, it's important to remember that, that that is not something that's been growing, but it's actually just something that has been getting louder. And there's a difference between growing and louder. Um, so that, that, that culture has been getting louder for a while. And I think that is the sign of something, you know, of, of much smarter sociologists than I can dig into that. And there's some good books about that, you know, the, the current, you know, way in which uh, the sort of tribal identification is happening in the United States with, with, certain certain belief systems but i i think that uh you know techno the the that scientific illiteracy is is not necessarily growing as such as just getting louder um but i think like science fiction is an important part of of the discussion because it is a literature that that definitely has has associated itself with sort of stem topics and it does seem to to be a part of that group of people who get inspired to go into STEM a lot. And that's one thing that has always intrigued me about it. You know, the number of times I have, have met people who work at NASA who they then go on to tell me like, you know, of a science fiction book that really got them inspired to basically join NASA and go out there and do these things. And of course I'm always inspired by what NASA is currently doing. So this is really interesting symbiotic relationship that is really healthy and interesting. And one reason why I want to have diverse characters in the future and to write about science fiction with diverse characters is because I think it's important for the upcoming generations who are, very cosmopolitan in both the U.S. and outside of the U.S. There's this vast number of people who are out there reading, who are getting more and more educated, and who are becoming, you know, stepping onto this world scene. I think it's important for this all of these people to see themselves in some fiction and to not be left out. And I think it's an important thing where if people who are involved in these technical industries and these scientists – where a lot of them, you know, say they're inspired by science fiction to do that, then I think that, you know, I would like to see, you know, the, the scientists of the future actually have some some science fiction that speaks to them in a way that a sort of suburban, more white bread science fiction, you know, uh, might not. Or, you know, even if it might, you know, let's bring more diversity to this field so that people have more to pick and choose from and more to be inspired by. It's it's always really exciting to me to meet a wide variety of readers who are basically psyched to see themselves in the future, you know, because that's something a lot of people haven't been given. And that shit kind of wears on you. 
Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things that we, we talked about at Race Spending because the founder um, is somebody who, who works in the mental health field. And I mean, the famous reason why Brown v. Board of Education was a unanimous decision is because psychologically they were able to provide evidence that says, look, look at what you're proposing is you're you're inherently proposing an inferiority complex here. And so yeah. living living with that type of thing because of, of, of media interaction is, yeah, that's a grading thing <laughs> that people yeah. have to have to realize that they don't understand that feeling. Because if you inherently, if it's something that I have I would not have, have experienced most of my life, I'm not going to be able to to understand whole, whole, I mean, holistically what that feels like. I'm not going to die of an aneurysm or a heart attack because I've had to grow up in, <laughs> in with dealing with racism or the question yeah. of it. But that's not something that that can be said for for other people. That there are actually like health. <laughs> it's that how horrible is that that's the conversation that we don't have is like it's so yeah. bad that it causes it causes actual uh. I, I, I talked to a young lady who uh, once uh hailed from cleveland and she was wanting to talk to me because she heard i grew up in the caribbean she's very excited she said like the caribbean saved my life and i said really she said yeah she was she was growing up in cleveland here in the midwest in ohio and she, she's she's african-american and she was one of the few African-American students in the school that she went to. And when she got to college, she had a, a mental breakdown. And I, I think she, she became suicidal and quit college and went back to her, her home. And everyone was really disappointed because the sort of hopes and dreams of a whole family were on her back. She was one of the first in her family to, to, to even get into college. And she said that, you know, she had been the one black person in class. She had been the representative of race. She'd always been trying to figure out for her whole life, did someone just insult me because they don't like me or are they insulting me because I'm black? Did someone just give me a low grade because that was something that I deserve or should I fight for this? Or, and, and so she'd been carrying all of this since she was a kid and always trying to interpret everything um, in terms of what, you know, what, where did that come from? And after her breakdown, uh, her family had some, some family in the Caribbean. And so they said, why don't you take a vacation? They said, we're going to send you to, you know, the Caribbean and you're going to just hang out down there for the summer and then see if you really want to quit higher education. And she went down and she spent the summer in the Caribbean. And she said for her, it was such a profound experience because when she landed, the uh, the first thing that happens was, you know, the taxi driver was was black and then the person on the radio giving the weather was black. And then the person who stamped her documents, you know, when she'd gotten off the plane was also black. And then the person on TV giving the news was black. And the politician who was in the middle of a scandal was also black. But the politician who was replacing him, who was, you know, renowned for being uh, a really stand-up person was also black. And and there was just black media and there were black faces on all the magazines. And she said she had this moment, you know, in this cosmopolitan atmosphere uh, around uh, so many different people, not just black, but, but then eventually, you know, uh, people from all over the world who, who were on, on, on the island, that she kind of was able to deprogram and spend three months just being herself and relaxing. And when she went back, uh, after a whole summer there, she was able to kind of, you know, refocus and, and go back to studies and kind of uh, 
kind of get out of herself a bit and 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 move to a different kind of place and it was really amazing her whole story all the details she told me and i you know i'd never really you know heard heard a story like that but i thought of course you know if if she never saw any role models uh or people in positions of power or anything like that who looked like her like you know imagine how that stacks up over a lifetime including like not seeing any media representations like it would feel like everything was off limits and that would really really draw you down well you know it's it's the problem that comes with the sort of tokenism that some people advance as diversity, which is they get the one black person on there. And when I talk to, to writers, beginning writers about, you know, they say like, well, it's a minefield. They're always worried about, you know, how to, how to show, they say it's a minefield. They're you know? worried about getting it wrong. They're worried about getting it because wrong. Because they don't you know? want to get it wrong. They don't do it at all. <laughs> right. Right. But I'm, or they just, you know, there's like one character and I'm like, you know, when you have one character, that's, that's the one character that's X and, they hold all of all of the, you know, like it, it's dangerous because then that one person represents so much, right? I was thinking, and that's why diversity is important. We need like right? a, we need two people. Of, we need like a new test that's like, do two people of color interact in the same scene at any time in your I'm film or book? Called that the Bakel test because every time I read a manuscript, <laughs> I'm always just like, look, you're you've you know, do you have? a couple of diverse characters that can talk to each other. Yeah. It's like a Bechdel, a Bechdel test for people of color is actually kind of useful. Do you, you know, do you, can your manuscript pass that? Um, most things I read don't, you know, many things I read don't. And so, yeah, it was one of those things where I was saying like, you know, if, if you have a black guy that shows up on, on, in your manuscript and they're a drug dealer, like someone's going to give you crap. Cause that's the one thing you reached for. But if you have like, you know, a drug dealer and a college professor, right? Like you can play with those characters a whole bunch and you have, you have more range and look, you added some diversity and now you have diversity of character and you have diversity of what you can play with as a writer. And that's, you know, that's something to to think about and approach. Whereas if you have just the one character and look like it's a mistake that, that anyone can make. I mean, I, in one of my first manuscripts, I have very few female characters. And as a result, a lot of female readers kind of placed a marker where they went like, so this is your one main female character. What does that mean? And, and there's a lot of there's a lot of flack that 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 can be justifiably sent your way because you're going like, well, this is the one thing you did here with that with that. And you're leaving out a vast amount of human experience, right? And that's weak, dude. A majority of readers at this point. Yeah, you know, um, and you kind of look at it and you went like, you're totally right. You know, uh, I have no... I have no defense. You're completely correct, and I will try to do better from now on. Oh, you know? I, d- I didn't ask about one of your female characters, actually. You had a short story that became a book. Um, talk about the executionist for, for a little while here. As we're kind of, yeah, I think that's a yeah. good segue talking about your female characters. Obviously, female protagonist in Arctic Rising as well. Yes, yes. Um, I, I didn't set out to write a female protagonist in Arctic Rising, but Annika, uh, when I, uh, when I was playing with, um, with the setting and the outline and everything like that, it originally had Rue and Annika Duncan, and as I started to. Build the story and, and outline it. Um, she just took over, and I just rolled with it. You know, I just went, "This is this is her story, and I'm going to let it happen, and and just keep running with it." And and so that's just 
that that happened. <laughs> um, for the executionist, it's one of my rare fantasy stories. I don't do a lot of high fantasy, but I had been challenged by Maureen McHugh, and not face to face, but I was. I challenge uh, you to a literary <laughs> duel, sir. <laughs> and she would win if that were to happen. So <laughs> I, you know, I would cry uncle. But uh, Maureen is, is a fantastic writer, and she, for a long time, lived in Cleveland, and she was down at a, a convention in Columbus, and she kind of pointed out the, the lack of, of middle-aged um, characters in, in high fantasy, middle-aged female characters, that kind of character, like mothers, that sort of thing. And I kind of was sitting in the audience, and I perked up, and I thought, wow, she's right. I kind of listed off a bunch of fantasy novels I'd read of recently and, and realized that like there was there was kind of an avoidance of that. And she said, you know, it'd be it'd be interesting to see someone do something in that vein. And so I set out to to write the executionist to see if I could do that at all. Um some people have dinged me. They didn't like they didn't like it. Some people have said that, you know, they thought I did okay and there's a wide range of opinion. And I'm just I it was just uh I'm just glad to have put it out there and you know, I'll, I'll be trying again to do that kind of thing because it's just, again, like you said, you don't want to leave out half the human population. And it's really easy to, you know, write the same thing over and over again. And so it was just an, an attempt, you know, for better or worse by me to kind of get out there and do something that people wouldn't have expected me to do. And I think that's, that's just, uh, that's just fun. <laughs> and, you know, uh, the idea of the executionist was, bloody and and appealed to me uh, the female executioner <laughs> um who becomes it's it's a superhero tale in in many ways uh, it's it's the legend of the executionist you know she she has a she has a a brand and she starts out just sort of trying to right some wrongs and and the legend grows and i just wanted to play with that and expand it and and, and run with it um, but the the story for for re, for listeners who are kind of going like okay what's it about? It's the story of a a, um, a world where uh, magic has a consequence, which is that the stuff called the bramble grows every time you cast a magic spell or use magic. There's a side effect, you know, magic pollution basically, and the bramble is the. I'm beginning know, sort of, to see a theme here. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. it it uh, you. you prick it and and it it puts you into a coma basically so it's nasty stuff and it just kind of pops up all around and i co-wrote this with paolo bacigalupi i wrote a novella set in this world and he wrote a novella set in the world and we kind of bounced these ideas and things off of each other and it's this really cool creative experience to do something with with another person and and the executionist is someone who kills you know basically executes people who use magic and that's how they kind of try to control bramble you know which is if you're caught using magic you get your head cut off and and uh her father is the executioner and uh he's too sick and so she basically takes up the hood and the axe and and takes up the job and chaos and crazy things ensue from there but that that was that was just the launch point i had the character and the moment that she takes over the job from her dad and that was I wrote the scene and, and, and just kind of tried to pull the story out from there and, and see where it went. Awesome. So we're, I mean, you've already given us, like I said, a lot of your time here. I think this will probably be <laughs> truly the last question. Okay. I, um, I think 
we're going to go ahead and, like I said, give you the whole episode, essentially, so about an hour long um, for the podcast, and transcribe um, possibly a couple of different segments for, for the, the website, but at least one uh, segment for race spending and then the rest on okay. SQL Buzz. Um, but I wanted to, I would be remiss if I didn't talk have this uh, good science fiction author on here. We talked about Halo a little bit last time, but yeah. now I think I want to talk about, like, prat- I don't get to talk about, like, practical science-y stuff with, uh, we, you mentioned SpaceX earlier, and so I had to, to wonder, like, what, what do you, what is your vision of kind of the near midterm of uh, of spaceflight? Because there are some exciting things, things like the, you mentioned the with Mars. I mean, things like the yeah. Red Dragon mission or things like that. Yeah, or, yeah. Or um, just the idea of it's the one area where I'm like, yay for private science stuff. Yeah. Because like, I'm always for big. I, I want NASA to have a lot of money, and I really, really <laughs> do. But it, it's like they actually hit the nail on the head. They're like, if you want to, as a as a science fiction fan, if you want to jump into Millennium Falcon, it's not owned by the government. Right. <laughs> you actually have to have a private space industry because it's going to eventually net you trillions of dollars because people need to get into space to advance our culture. And so it's a neat thing that. It's actually we're actually seeing this happen in a, in a tiny and in a big way in our own lifetimes. Well, the exciting thing uh, for me is that SpaceX is uber focused on reusability, and I think that's been the missing part of the equation, which is that NASA has tried to do reusability, and when the projects have failed, they've backed out and, and cut their losses, which makes sense. You know, sunk costs fallacy. You'd, you know, you don't want to throw good money after bad. But there have been a couple projects where they've tried to do reusable, you know, single stage to orbit type things, and it, and it hasn't worked out. And so we've, we've kept on with the system of custom building our vehicles that are then shot to space, and they come back down and we don't use them again. And as Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, rightly points out, you know, this is like imagining that we built a new fly to L.A. and you flew it to L.A. and then you scrapped it once it got there. He's like, no one would be able to fly from from New York to L.A. if that's how you ran the airline industry. And, you know, that's exactly right. So SpaceX, to me, I think near term is tremendously exciting because, you know, we, we he just sent up that first stage reusable rocket that came back down and landed on the ocean – you know, so he's demonstrated that they can do it with the first stage and the SpaceX capsule Dragon that'll be taking people up to, to the space station, hopefully within the next two, two and a half years, is supposed to go ahead and land on rockets. It's not going to f- come back down on, on, on parachutes, but it's going to land on its rockets on little legs. The grasshopper. And and, and they're going to be able to reuse the capsule 10 times before they need to put a new heat shield on it. And of course, the grasshopper lands on its rocket on the tail end, just like an old classic 1930s science fiction movie. You know, the rocket landing on that, just on the tail with the flame underneath it. And, you know, it, it, he looks like he's going to be able to drastically cut the costs for launching things into, into orbit. And of course, you know, by orders of magnitude, and I think that's going to be exciting. So I, I cannot wait to see what happens over the next 10 to 15 years. I'm and, really... and they're competing. We have three competitors now that are going to be sending vehicles We've got the space. Dream Chaser. We've got Orbital, uh, the... the Sierra Nevada, I guess, yeah? Yeah, Sierra ne- Nevada is doing that little space plane, and you've got uh, Boeing is doing the CST-100, mm-hmm. uh, 
and then we've got SpaceX. And the sad thing is that we would have had human launches next year or possibly even this year if Congress hadn't have cut money to the, uh, to the commercial crew program. Um, it was it, because the commercial crew program was supported by Obama. It, you know, Congress and and certain elements within Congress have just been, you know, lashing back and and fighting. What a weird NASA. fight it was because it was yeah. they were so de- you have a, they were so, demanding so an increase in NASA funding. The Republicans were they were demanding an increase in NASA funding. Just it wouldn't have been very helpful funding. <laughs> right, right. Such so a they're weird fight demanding to have. an increase in funding, but only for the the NASA the NASA rocket and they they decreased funding for the private space. What um, a weird thing for Republicans so, so, to do. Yeah, it's like, I, know. I felt like yeah. I was living in bizarro world in terms of space policy the last six years. Right. Right. And, and because Obama liked the uh, CC dev, it's really funny to watch like, you know, libertarians online, you know, denounce it. You know, some of them are like so anti Obama that they're like, you know, Screw market-based space solutions. <laughs> like so, this, this is the one area where it won't work because we have to be patriotic because we beat the Russians. Yes, yes. So it's 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 really. See, I, I told you I'd bring it back to America, and I just did. Oh, you just did. So yeah, it it. I'm really encouraged by it. I'm really encouraged by how much cheaper SpaceX is, and I'm really encouraged by the competition between Dream Chaser, Boeing, and SpaceX. I mean, obviously SpaceX seems to be the the leader. But I really hope that all three of them get a chance to to put people up in orbit because I mean having three of them redundant is is fantastic and I like the idea of NASA picking the winner and not see like b- before this you know uh, what they were doing was they were they were looking at the proposals they were picking one and then just throwing money at that company and I think that stepping back and saying we pay you for successful launches into orbit is fantastic of course let's do it that way. I think the other interesting thing that we're seeing now is private spaceports opening. And even in the Midwest, like there's a spaceport, Indiana, there's a Great Lakes spaceport that they're working on and uh, in Michigan and in Ohio. And there's uh, obviously and they already have it in in the Midwest or in the Southwest. They already have one. There'll be one in Aruba. Really? Yeah. For um, I think it's for X-Core Aerospace, one of the other little uh, suborbital planes, rocket planes. <laughs> so that was, I mean, that was another one of your your uh, kind of what seemed like a fanciful thing only a few years ago is is taking flight. I mean, you're, there's a, is that the the beginnings of a Caribbean space program right there? Well, we already have. I mean, uh, Europe has in uh, uh, Guyana or uh, uh, oh yeah, I mean um, Guyana there where it's English speaking population and it's uh, like NASA is like it, they pretty much want us to make it the 51st state so we can go and do fun space research there near the equator. Well, uh, they but that's where Europe Europe launches a lot of their delta the a lot of the rockets from the European Space Agency launches from the tip of South America Caribbean region area. What is the sciencey thing? It's the closer you are to the equator, the easier it is to leave the gravitational pull. I can't remember the sciencey reason for for why we have to do it. Near- uh, well, you, you the the Earth spinning the Earth spins, and so that velocity is added to the rocket. So it saves you fuel because you have you don't have to get the spacecraft going as fast to get into orbit. So it's a uh, Kuro in French Guiana is where the European Space Agency launches from. So like the Caribbean, you know. It, Caribbean South America kind of already has a space launch facility. 
That is awesome. <laughs> I like learning new things. And now all of our pod, well, some perhaps some of our our, our tech savvy podcasters were already aware. But, sure, but well, I, I'll, I'll bring it. Like I'll bring it. We I'll bring it full circle since since we're we're getting to the end of the podcast. I'll bring it completely full circle and talk a little bit about the alternate space axis and the upcoming upcoming novel. And I'll plug my own novel. So yeah. I'll, I'll bring it full circle, and it'll work for me to plug the novel. And we'll end on that note, and it'll be beautiful, right? <laughs> you, you've got it. You've got. The whole you got the the floor, sir. Yeah. So hurricane fever. Uh, one of the elements of it was that when I was in Barbados last, I was I found out about a little piece of alternate space access history, which is that there was something called the Harp Project down there, which was back in the fifties and sixties, engineer scientist wanted to build a basically a Verne cannon, like a Jules Verne esque canon to launch things into space if you ever you know read Ur- the uh, Verne the Verne novels about sh- the first man to the moon according to Verne and the thing is like Verne's physics the cal- the calculations work you can actually shoot something into space and this guy actually worked out the math and said yes we can do it and so he got money from the US military and got some land from the Barbadian government and the support of the Barbadian Defense Forces, and he was this Canadian researcher, and they built a giant friggin' artillery gun that would shoot small microsatellites up into the air. And this was back when we were first trying to figure out how to launch rockets. So it was an either-or thing, like, you know, who knows what'll get stuff into orbit. And... They eventually were shooting things higher and higher and higher from the coast of Barbados out over the Atlantic, right? And eventually they got it up to 100 kilometers, right? And with one of the big guns. And the plan was to just build bigger and bigger guns to shoot satellites into orbit. Not people because you turn into toothpaste. But you could launch a lot of mass for cheap just using these this, you know, giant gun. And unfortunately, uh, you know, the... NASA was created – well, not unfortunately. I mean I don't have anything against NASA, but <laughs> NASA was created, and when that was created, all you know, space access activity in the military was kind of rounded up and put into NASA. So he kind of lost that, that you know, funding he was getting from the military. Uh, he had some problems with uh, you know, politics back at his university in Canada, and it was all shut down. But for a while there, it looked like you – know, Barbados might become this like place where satellites were launched on the cheap and it would have been a major chapter and a major thing within the Caribbean to have this this you know launcher. Unfortunately, it, like I said it was all shut down. Um they only ever got up, you know, to the edge of space with the, with these launches and all of that was 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 shut down. He later tried to restart it with a a little dictator called oh, in Iraq. Hussein. Yeah, this- in Iraq. And uh, they started to build a giant gun from which, you know, Saddam Hussein could shell any part of the Middle East that he wanted to. And, uh, you know, his idea was, you know, to try and test this gun out to to use it to launch satellites. And he was assassinated. No one knows by whom, but he was assassinated before he could finish building it for Saddam Hussein. It's a real Bond story. I don't know why that's never been a movie made. (laughs) So you can imagine when I found out about this, you know, and in Barbados, I got to actually walk around and see the facility and that the the barrels are still there. And it's amazing. And I said, you know, we got to bring this back. And so for the last half of Hurricane Fever, um, I, it's features the second generation of that launch gun facility. 
and it's you know being designed to send satellites up into orbit and and do a lot of stuff and because like you said it is like a bond movie and I, I kind of am riffing on the Bond sequence. I've got this Caribbean James Bond. I figured I had to bring those two things together and run with them. Oh, that so that's is, how we bring it all full circle. Now, that, that would make a long blurb, but I almost feel like that would be worth uh, the front cover there. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the Caribbean James Bond fighting in a James Bond-like facility in Barbados. Chill. That's exactly <laughs> what it is, man. That's exactly – that's the pitch. Hey listeners, this is Micus, creator of the kind of epic theme song, Zombie Kids. If you're interested in finding out more about my music, you can check me out at micusmusic.com. Also, I am on iTunes, Facebook, and SoundCloud. You can look me up as Micus Music, and that's M-I-K-U-S, and you know the rest. All right, peace out, everyone. Keep listening.